He won his first American Classic in May and rode for the first time at the prestigious Royal Ascot meeting in England. Yet why, just 48 hours after winning the Preakness on War of Will, was Tyler Gaffleone riding on a Monday night in Erie, Pennsylvania? We'll ask him. Plus, the tension in Southern California seems to grow by the day. Where do things go from here? We'll have an update on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. We all know that bloodlines are important when it comes to predicting who will make for the best performing horses. The same, of course, applies to the riders of these noble animals. And there are certain families who are pretty well pedigreed in that area. There are the Bayses, of course, led by the country's winningest rider of all time, Russell Bays. Then you have the Rices. Taylor was a jockey for several years. Her brothers, aunt, and grandfather are or were trainers. There are the Ortiz brothers. Jose is married to Taylor Rice. The Doyles, the Davises, and several other prominent jockey bloodlines as well. Until the last few years, no one would have brought immediately to mind the Gaffleone family. Bobby Gaffleone rode from the mid-1970s through the early 90s. His son Steve Gaffleone won over 800 races in a two-decade career, but it is the family's third generation that has given the racing public, to quote the song from Fort Minor, a 100% reason to remember the name. Now to the inside, War of Wills asks for a little more run, still four to make up, but saving ground. A quarter to go at Pimlico, Warriors Charge leads the way, and on the inside, War of Will, and they're at war in the final furlong. War of Will and Tyler Gaffley slipping through on the inside, shifting out just a tad on their left-handed energy, and here comes Everfast on the inside, and Owendale, a late bit on the outside, War of Will won! Wow, War of Will! It was the first Triple Crown race win in just his third try. Of course, there was this year's Kentucky Derby dust-up with War of Will and Maximum Security. Before that, you may remember the one-eyed horse Patch from the Kentucky Derby two years ago, rather than his then-anonymous rider. Anonymous no more, as we welcome in the up-and-coming rider Tyler Gaffleone here to win the gate. You haven't given yourself a lot of opportunity to catch your breath. Riding at little Presque Isle Downs on the Monday after winning the Preakness just 48 hours later doesn't qualify as time to take a deep breath. What chance have you had to say to yourself, wow, I can't believe this is all happening? You know, there really hasn't been much downtime. Um, Like you said, after the Preakness, I actually had to fly back that night. I had to work horses for Wesley Ward that Sunday morning in preparation for Royal Ascot. And then... I had to leave that night after the races to fly to Erie, Pennsylvania to ride that Monday. So work has continued as business as usual and uh, just been trying to keep moving forward in my career and keep taking each step possible. 
Yeah, we'll get to Royal Ascot in a minute. I mean, where else would you rather be than Erie, Pennsylvania on a Monday? I mean, how did it feel to win the Preakness after what had happened in the Kentucky Derby? You know, it, it was an incredible moment, not only for myself, but for the connections. Uh, Mr. Barber and Mr. Cassie have been so great to me throughout my career. And I was I was just so happy for the horse, too. He meant a lot to me from the beginning. I developed a good connection with him, traveling from Miami to uh, New Orleans to ride him. And I was really looking forward to the Derby. And he was training really well going into the race, and I had a lot of confidence in him. But, you know, we had a, a little mishap, but luckily he came out of it sound and healthy, and we were able to capitalize on the Preakness. Now, we're not going to go too deep into what happened at the Kentucky Derby, because clearly the only call was made, I believe. Having said that, a lot of folks in the mainstream media and public who don't understand how disqualifications work were not satisfied with the way it went down. Did you find yourself feeling like the heavy at all with the questions you were getting asked after that race? You know, I, I understand everyone's point of view. Everybody has an opinion, and they're entitled to it. Personally, I mean, if if you know horse racing and you follow it closely, you know that the, the disqualification was justified. Just nothing against the horse or the rider or the connections. It's just something you can't you can't do. And especially in a race like that, there's 20 horses, and uh, luckily everybody came out of it, out of it safely. But you know, it's just one of those things. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's part of the game. Now, in our introduction, we talked about your father and grandfather as jockeys. And, I mean, given the wear and tear and making weight and all that, didn't they try to talk you out of being a rider? <laughs> uh, no, I fell in love with the horse racing at a young age. And definitely with my family being involved, it was an easy decision for me to make. I waited my whole life to become a jockey and soon as I was able to, uh, took out my license and began riding after I graduated high school. And I haven't looked back since. This is all I've ever wanted to do and it's all I ever want to do. So I'm very happy with where I am. What do you think is different from learning with your family as opposed to going to, say, the North American Riding Academy to learn to ride? It's hard for me to speak on that because uh, I've never actually been to the academy. But um, I know Chris McCarron was running it and Chris was an amazing rider and actually I idolized him growing up. I copied a lot of things that he did and still do. Uh, I watch his replays constantly, but I would say for me, having my father teach me and he was able to be more personal and take more time uh, just to focus on me and to develop me, my skills and my riding ability. He was also able to criticize me just because we had that relationship, uh, whenever I messed up, he'd be able to point out my flaws and we'd try and fix them and work on them the best we could. Jockey Tyler Gaffleone is with us here on In the Gate. Now, you grew up in South Florida, of course, where the big sport isn't racing, it's football. And sure enough, you actually played high school football. How does a guy who will spend the rest of his career trying not to be bulky and weighty wind up playing football? You know, growing up in Florida, I was a big fan of the Miami Dolphins. Dan Marino was my hero growing up. I idolized guys like Tom Brady, so football was just an easy decision at the time. I was in high school, and I wasn't able to ride. My one rule was I had to finish high school first, so it was something to help pass the time. And I always liked staying active. I played sports growing up, soccer, baseball, football, hockey, all kinds of things. Um, Really just anything to be competitive. Uh, I liked the competition and just getting out there and playing sports. 
You played hockey? Oh, yes. Ice hockey with the Junior Panthers and at Pines Ice Arena in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Oh, I know that well. I have a lot of family in Pembroke Pines, and actually my son competed in a tournament against a team from Fort Lauderdale, and I could not believe how into it those people were in a non-traditional hockey market. These people right? were more <laughs> animated than any set of parents I've ever seen in hockey. <laughs> no, they love it down there. Uh, actually, there's quite a few high schools that have teams, so it's pretty big down there. I read that you became something of a rallying point for your high school JV football team when opponents would disrespect you because of your lack of size. Can you give us an example? I mean, we went to summer camp one time, and um, I was playing corner against a pretty tall receiver, and they were just kind of making jokes about my size. And I never let it bother me. I I always liked being small because I was planning on being the jockey, so it never really got to me. But, uh, But... They like to say a few things, but it's part of the game. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say none of those teammates or opponents have ever stood in the presence of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. So what (laughs) was it like to ride at Royal Ascot? It was so incredible. It was a dream come true. You know, the place is historically one of the top-rated tracks in the world. So just to be able to go there and kind of take everything in, it, it was incredible riding with guys like Brian Moore or James Doyle. Frankie DeTore, Jamie Spencer. It was incredible. And seeing those horses, because we don't really get to see them unless they come over for the Breeders' Cup and get in to see them firsthand and run against them. It, it was truly special, but it was an amazing experience. I'm so thankful to Wesley and all the connections for bringing me over. Was that the first time you'd ever written on a straight course? Yes, it was. It was a little different, but I enjoyed it. I actually got to um, wear a jockey cam. They gave us a little camera to put on their helmet and uh, record my race in the Diamond Jubilee on closing day, and they sent me the video the other day. It was pretty cool to watch. Well, how do you determine when to switch leads on a horse when there's no turn? Oh, honestly, you just kind of let the horse do his thing because uh, the more you try and fight with them, you just kind of throw them off. Those kind of races, you just have to let them be comfortable, and instinctually they'll switch when they need to, so you just kind of rely on them to get the job done. Obviously, we can agree that there's a coterie of really top-level riders across the country, the Ortiz brothers, Javier Castellano, Mike Smith, and others. Now, beyond just landing better mounts, the obvious answer, what can you do to refine your craft as a rider in order to reach that kind of plateau? Just work hard every day. Try and learn as much as you can. Take notes and listen. Be open to suggestions and critique from all outside people, including trainers, jockeys, owners. Uh, just be mindful and respectful of everybody and just keep working hard to get be as good as you possibly can be. And hopefully you can catch a couple lucky breaks and find the right horses that will help you out. What's the best advice you've gotten from a fellow rider? You know, Edgar, Edgar Prado has been so great to me throughout my career. He's been more of like a father figure. Even when I win and I think I rode a perfect race, he'll come back and point out something that I did wrong in the race but it's all trying to make me better and I one thing he really encourages is uh being patient and sitting inside the pocket don't make premature moves and you don't have to get to the outside right away just sometimes let a race develop and wait for your, your spot inside well we certainly wish you the best of luck going forward from here I'm guessing this is absolutely the beginning not the end of hearing your name on a weekly basis so thank you so much for a few minutes sir No, thank you. I appreciate the call. 
We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, the turbulent waters in Southern California racing have grown frothier in recent weeks. Where do we go from here? We'll have an update when we come back. Welcome back to In the Gate. Royal Ascot was fun to watch, wasn't it? Five glorious days of top-level racing, high fashion, the presence of Her Majesty, of course, and crowds and media that only had to worry about some rain and who would win each race. Boy, would California racing officials love to have those problems right now. The conclusion of the Santa Anita meet could not come fast enough for all involved. And even since our last show, where we discussed the latest news at that point, the newest developments have shaken the landscape out there as much as the earthquakes, for which the area is so well known. The Geiger counter rose on the number of fatalities at Santa Anita to a final tally of 30. Four of those horses were trained by Hall of Famer Jerry Hollendorfer. Before the meet had ended, Santa Anita officials told Hollendorfer that he was no longer welcome to train his horses there. They literally kicked him and his horses off the grounds. No other track, either in California or elsewhere, has said the same, and Hollendorfer, perhaps preparing for the Santa Anita expulsion to happen, had already sent a few horses and an assistant trainer to New York. Then, as if what you just heard wasn't enough, the California Horse Racing Board, the division of the state government that regulates racing throughout the state, not just at Santa Anita, unanimously decided to pull out of the Association of Racing Commissioners International, the ARCI. That's the group that loosely unites all of the state government racing jurisdictions across the country. It appears that the crux of the matter is that the CHRB eventually wants to do away with giving horses Lasix on race day as part of the sweeping reforms that Santa Anita officials are implementing in the wake of all the deaths. The ARCI, like many horsemen across the country, will not budge. They want to continue allowing Lasix. So what does all this mean for racing in California and across the country? Where do we go from here? I'm not going to lie. My head is spinning. And yours might be too. Well, one guy who keeps a level head always, even amidst this chaos, is our friend Frank Angst of the Blood Horse, whom we've dialed so he can throw us a life raft. Where do we start here? I guess we'll start with Jerry Hollendorfer, since he probably commands the biggest headlines. What do you make of what happened with him? I mean, it, it looks looks to me like the Santa Anita officials, one of the approaches that they're trying to take in terms of reducing breakdowns is tracking trainer performance. And, and unfortunately, Jerry had a run there where he had four breakdowns of the 30 that occurred, and... Santa Anita management decided that the, that wasn't something they wanted at their track in terms of having Jerry. In other states, a lot of times these things are fought out in court because sometimes this has to go to the regulator. I haven't heard of any intentions like that yet from Jerry or the horseman's group. That would probably be the interesting part to follow. Or it could just be a case where Jerry does have other stables and he might may opt to just uh, train out of those stables. Now, on the one hand, obviously he's a Hall of Fame trainer, and one of the horses he lost was a Breeders' Cup champion, Battle of Midway. But what some observers are also saying is that because field size has been a problem at Santa Anita for years, 
that horses who don't really belong running in races of this level are finding their way in, and they are mostly the ones who are getting hurt. Is there any correlation here with Hollendorfer? And if not, why is he the one being kicked out? Yeah, I mean, there have been some other trainers that they also kicked out. We've run story from Shelby Ruiz, uh, who has a lot fewer horses than Jerry, but we ran that uh, in February, and she noted that the concern that, that she felt pressure from Santa Anita racing officials to, to run horses on what she thought at the time was an unsafe track. So that certainly was a concern, and it, it certainly has continued to be a concern. Frank Stronach, who Granted, is not a neutral party. Uh, he's no longer with the Stronic Group, but he's trying through a court case to get control back. So he most assuredly has his own interests, but he, he has also raised the same concerns, saying that Santa Anita officials have not been responsible in the, the way they've run that meet. There were still some fatalities at Santa Anita, even after the added level of oversight the track and the California Horse Racing Board put in toward the end of the meet, with more people examining the horses and judging whether they're fit to run in races. What conclusions, if any, can racing officials draw from this? Well, one thing about it is we all hope that there's a day that there can be zero breakdowns. That's the goal of, I think, every person in the industry, every responsible person for sure, which is the vast majority of people, both on the racing official side and on the trainer side. But until then, I think to be fair, you do have to look at breakdown rates. Unfortunately, it's, there's nobody that has zero. And since they've put those new policies in place, the rate is lower than what the rate was last year, the, the meet last year, the corresponding meet. So that's encouraging. They have gotten back to that level. Obviously, there's an expectation of having even more success, making even more progress on that front. But they've at least gotten back to that level. It's a, the rate since the changes have been made is lower than, than the level last year that they had at that meet. And it's comparable to the national level. But wait, there's more news. The California Horse Racing Board breaking away from the Racing Commissioners International. Well, first of all, there goes the discussion we had on this show just two weeks ago about how we don't need a national body because so many jurisdictions are accepting the ARCI and their model rules. Oh, well, (laughs) but without going too far down the rabbit hole on LASIK specifically, what precedent does this set about the administration of this sport? Yeah, I think it was an interesting dynamic there, and the ARCI has been making its case uh, for state-to-state regulation, as you would expect them to. <laughs> that's, that's who they are. And the reason that they're, they're feeling the need to make that case is there has been federal legislation introduced that would see USADA largely take over the medication and equine testing programs. And so USADA would form a board, and that board would, would oversee it instead of the state-to-state regulation that we've seen that in my opinion, could do a lot better. So I'm encouraged to the possibilities of USADA, of that idea. ARCI, and the the biggest sticking point is that along with that legislation, they would outlaw race state Lasix. So that's probably the biggest point of concern of some horsemen. And it goes against the model rules that ARCI have put in place already. So ARCI has to 
on a lot of fronts has defended the use of Lasix. That is not in line with what the CHRB has done. They've reduced the uh, maximum dose of Lasix. They've cut that in half. And that board is very well likely moving toward a phase out of Lasix. And seeing the different opinions on that, the CHRB voted to, to leave ARCI. By the way, I'm not going to lie. We had an expert, a political expert on the show a few weeks ago who said there's practically no chance of that USADA bill being passed. I hate to break that to you. Oh, I mean, I'm well aware of the struggles there. But interestingly enough, though, this is the first time that the Senate has introduced uh, corresponding legislation. So it is a sign that maybe some things have turned. It's very much an uphill battle on that front. But but it it is interesting that some things have changed. You also have the tracks largely moving in that direction anyway. And Churchill Downs, the Stronic Group, Naira, Delmar, Keeneland, all basically the tracks that account for almost all of the graded stakes in the U.S., they're largely going to be putting those policies in place anyway. That would be more restrictive on Lasix than what the current model rule is and more restrictive on some other medications of concern. So the industry is kind of addressing, they're, they're kind of well aware that something needs to be done to to show people that that they're trying to address the problem and and hopefully actually in fact addressing the problem. Some of these ideas I think have some real potential to do that. Frank Angst of the Blood Horse is trying his best to help settle us down here on In the Gate. It's not going well. My head is still swimming. If you're Joe Harper and Josh Rubenstein at Del Mar, with the lucrative and much beloved summer meet coming up, what are you thinking right now? I think Del Mar uh, can still uh, put together a good meet. I mean, they're one of the tracks that is on board on some of these new policies, and I think they're they're fully capable of putting together a strong meet. The Breeders' Cup is supposed to be run at Santa Anita in early November. At the time we're recording this, no decision has been made about moving the event. How likely is that to happen? I mean, it, it's up to the 14 board members. I think they're going to weigh that decision and soon make a decision on that. To me, it seems a no-brainer because the best that can happen is that everything goes well, but the story still leading up will be about all the fatalities earlier in the year. Of course, we know what the worst that can happen is. So to me, there's just a lot more downside there than upside. And so moving the event to me is a no-brainer. What sense are you getting from the commissioners about what they might do? I think it's going to be a pretty pretty close close vote, close decision. I mean, what you just said, it, it might be the case regardless of where they run run the races. But, you, you know, if you run them at Santa Anita, it definitely puts a lot of focus on it. So I think those are the th- some of the things they are considering. And I hate to ask this question. Neither of us want to efface this. But what chance do you think there is that what's happened in California will really threaten the future of this sport? I mean, it's definitely a major concern. I mean, California is a, is a key racing jurisdiction, and it's it's been very problematic. And uh, the good news is a lot of things have taken place to address the problem, both both in California and throughout the country. I mean, we've seen a bigger commitment from racetracks on these issues than we've ever seen. So I think um, the industry is well aware of what it's up against and that, that it needs to address this problem. 
Well, hopefully that life raft you're throwing me will actually float because I need something right now. I think a lot of people listening need one too. But thank you so much, Frank, for all of your perspective. Thanks for keeping us calm. You're welcome, Barry. Our thanks to Frank Angst and to Tyler Gaffleyone. It takes a special type of person to blend talent with charisma. So few personalities possess both in this sport. Eddie Arcaro, Lester Piggott, but none like Frankie DeTore, whose wins worldwide bring bigger and bigger exhorts. DeTore's four straight wins to start the Royal Meetings Thursday crescendoed with a win in the big one, a successful title defense by Stradivarius in the Gold Cup, which he made look like a bit of child's fun. In 2012, DeTore hit rock bottom in his life, a cocaine addict, he was fired by the Sheik of Dubai. DeTore was north of 40 years old. How would he reclaim his magic? Then John Gosden saw that twinkle in DeTore's eye. Since coming back, DeTore's won three arcs, that's six overall, and re-established himself as the very best. At 48, DeTore's energy seemingly knows no bounds, and he's passed not just racing's, but life's big tests. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.